If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I'd invite you to turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. We are continuing a series called Mic Drop. This is our third installment. And this morning we're going to study from verse 40 through uh, 56. This morning and this message is a two for the price of one. Uh, it's a twofer. Now, I, I said that earlier this week to my sons and they thought I was saying like what little children refer to their teeth. You know, I got twofers. No, not, not twofer, but two for the price of one. Uh, two for the price of one is a very common, very popular marketing technique to get people to buy things. I mean, how many of you have found yourself being enticed for a two for the price of one special? Anybody? I got some testimonies this morning. You know, we have two sons and particularly around school year shopping. When I see a two for one sale, man, I am just like zoomed in. Can't stop. Particularly over at that ridiculous store called Shoe Carnival here in town. You know, it's kind of a wild place and all disorganized and everybody's yelling and screaming. But when you go in and you see buy one, get one. Oh, man. I'm always buying two pairs of shoes because it's a two for the price of one. How many of you have ever fallen into that trap? Or, or maybe you've fallen into the marketing where it's a theme park admission or some kind of attraction and you get two for the price of one. Oh, you and a friend, you and your spouse get to go for the price of one. Okay, I got one that I know you're gonna get excited about. How about two for one sausage biscuits? Come on. You can't go wrong with two sausage biscuits for the price of one. You know, like two for the price of one. It's great. We find ourselves getting excited, getting drawn in. When we see two for the price of one, two things happening, two offers for the price of one. Well, in Luke chapter eight, you got a twofer. Two for the price of one. Two miracles that Jesus performs in the span of one day. And it's an amazing account where Jesus, on the way to do one miracle, does another miracle, a two for the price of one. I'm going to begin reading in verse 40 of Luke chapter 8. If you have found that passage, would you say, I found it? And if you're ready this morning, would you say, I'm ready? All right, let's, let's get after it. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went. And the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said... Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, 
for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping, and they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat, and her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Let's pray. So Lord, I ask now that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are open and receptive to what your spirit is saying through your word. I pray, God, that you would help me now be clear and that you would help us all take what you have for for us this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to give you a message map for today, kind of where we're going to go so you can track with me. I'm going to take some time to look at these two miracles side by side, compare them, look at how they are similar and even has how they have some unique aspects. And then I'm going to close with something that's for us all, two principles that apply to every single one of us who have found our faith in the Lord Jesus, two miracles Two principles. Let's start with the miracles. Because really you got a two for the price of one. Uh, Biblical scholars have referred to this passage as the miracle within the miracle. You have a woman who is suffering for 12 years. She's the first miracle. But her life was interwoven with Jesus going to a miracle or to perform a miracle on a 12-year-old daughter who was dying. The stage is set that Jesus has entered the town and Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, has come to him. He undoubtedly had heard of Jesus's healing power, his miraculous touch. And Jairus is a man of authority. He's a man of leadership. As ruler of the synagogue, he would normally be the person that people would come to themselves. But he's got a daughter who's sick. She's 12 years old. I've never had a child who was terminally ill. But I can only imagine the heart of a father and the heart of a man who's seeing his little baby girl who is suffering and unable to be helped by anyone. And so he comes to Jesus. He finds Jesus in the crowd, in the city. 
And verse 41 says, he falls at Jesus' feet and he begs him, he implores him, he pleads with Jesus to come to his house. He's probably not used to being on his knees asking anybody for anything, but in this moment, he knows who he needs to go to and he knows he needs to go to Jesus. And Jesus agrees. He agrees to go to Jairus' house and en route, in the process of going, another miracle takes place. A woman who had been suffering with the issue of blood finds him. Now she's in the crowd. She's not known to Jesus. She doesn't speak to Jesus. She doesn't even make facial contact with him. She just finds him. She's seeking him. Because she too has heard what he is capable of doing. In all of these past 12 years of her life, she has found herself absolutely without answers. Verse 43 tells us that she has spent all of her living on physicians. And she could not be healed by anyone. I mean, all of her wealth, all of her livelihood is gone on these 12 years of suffering. 12 years of bleeding. 12 years of being pushed aside. And friends, to understand the issue that she's having, this means she's not allowed to gather in groups. She's not allowed to gather in worship. She's not allowed to be around other people. She's isolated. She's set apart because of this issue of blood. 12 years. What were you doing 12 years ago? I'm struggling to remember 12 days ago. 12 years ago was 2010. Can you imagine over a decade, all your wealth, all your money, all your effort, and nothing is to come of it? She's still battling. But she seeks Jesus as well. Jairus has sought Jesus for someone else's daughter. She has sought Jesus for herself. Jairus seeks Jesus out in the open among the people. She seeks Jesus privately in within the crowd. And they are both seeking a miracle from the one who they know is the miracle worker. Two are seeking the one. And the settings by which these miracles take place are different. She or the daughter finds, or the woman finds her miracle in a pressing crowd. The daughter finds her miracle in a private room. The, the woman finds Jesus in the crowd. And, and you can imagine uh, maybe a large football game or a large sporting event and the people leaving after it's over. There's just a big crowd of people rushing and packing and pressing in. Verse 42, Jesus is in the crowd and they're pressing against him. Such that even when the miracle takes place and Jesus asks, who has touched him? Peter responds to him, Master, I mean, crowds are around you. Everybody's pressing in on you. Everybody's touching you. How can you ask who has touched me when we're all packed in like sardines? You see, she seeks him in this pressing crowd. Unwilling to even go before him one-on-one, unwilling to even make herself known because even her presence in the crowd would have caused question. But the little girl, her miracle takes place in a private room. Uh, Verse 51 tells us that when Jesus eventually gets to Jairus' house, 
There are professional mourners in place. Men and women who are trained to wail and cry and bemoan the loss of anyone. And Jesus wants them out of the room. He dismisses them entirely. And he calls Peter and John and James, the three inner circle disciples, along with mom and dad. The witnesses of this miracle are very small. And I believe it comes to us in scripture because one of the eyewitnesses, Peter, James, or John, responds and brings this to us because nobody else was there. There are different kinds of healings, but they are seeking the one. They are seeking Jesus. Different kinds of settings, a crowd in a room, but they're seeking the one Two seeking the one. And the way the miracles are performed are different. The woman reaches for Jesus's robe. Jesus reached for the daughter's hand. The woman's hope was in the simple passing touch of Jesus. She didn't ask him anything. She didn't request anything. She didn't even speak to him. She just wanted to be near him and touch him. Now, friends, we need to make note here. It's not Jesus's robe that was miraculous. This is not some super robe. Actually, I was thinking this is not Dr. Strange's coat or cape. Few of you are Marvel fans. I get it. It's okay. But you know, that whole cape flies around and does things at times. It's not the robe or the fabric or the fringe of the garment that has any miraculous power. It's not some fabric or garment that is supernatural. It's the fact that Jesus has power. It's the fact that Jesus is the one that the scripture says in verse 46, that the power had gone out from him. He is the miracle worker, not the robe. It's not the fringe and the garment that made the difference. It's Jesus that had made the difference. She finds him in the crowd and she touches his very garment and the power that comes only to him is extended from him unto her. He asks, who touched me? And that's not because he didn't know. It's to bring her out of the shadows into the place among the crowd. Verse 47 tells us that she comes and she's trembling and she falls before him. And she declares in front of everybody there that she had been healed. Verse 48 is a wonderful Verse where Jesus says something to her that he says to no one else in all of recorded scripture. The only time we have Jesus saying daughter to anyone is to this woman. Daughter, your faith has made you well. She found him. His power went through to her. It was through her faith and through her belief that this power was extended Now, for the little girl, it was through Jesus's touch. She reached out for his robe. He reached for her hand in that private room with only three disciples and mom and dad. He calls her by touching her hand and calls her from death to life. He says, child, arise. And the scripture says her spirit returned to her and she got up and needs something to eat and You can only imagine Jairus who believed his daughter to be dead, who had mourners already in the room grieving her loss. You can only imagine his defeat when he had heard just moments before, there's no reason to have the master come. She has 
gone. And yet in that moment when Jesus says, child, arise, I would think that Jairus would refer back to what Jesus said, do not fear, only believe. Again, belief and faith is the avenue and the path by which Jesus' power is extended through faith and belief, a woman is healed. Through faith and belief, a daughter is risen. It's two seeking the one. It's two miracles wrapped in the same occasion. Well, I could make a few more comparisons, but I want to leave the miracles aside for a moment and share some principles that apply to every single one of us. Because it would be easy for us to hear of these two women miraculously healed and think, oh, great stories, great miracles on the part of Jesus back then. And to think they have nothing to do with us, have no relevance in our life, have no application to who we are. But in every way, these two women, the woman of 12 years bleeding healed and the daughter of 12 years risen from the dead, they represent two miracles that we all have experienced. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have experienced these two miracles in a similar way. You have experienced these two miracles in a miraculous touch from Christ. Let me share with those two. One, we all have been restored by his power. Amen? We all have been restored by the power of Christ. We all have been a recipient of the restoration that comes through Jesus Christ's work in our heart and the continued restoration that comes through the Spirit of God for our entire walk with Jesus. Friends, I will say this to you, and I believe it's true for us all. You're a work in progress. You are a restoration in progress. Christ has restored us through his power and he continues to restore us through a process we call sanctification. That's the theological word. That's the big seminary word. But you have been restored. You have been transformed through Christ's power and through his death and resurrection. And you are continually restored year in, year out as you walk with him. You're not who you used to be. And you're not going to be five years from now, ten years from now, who you are today. You're being continually restored. You say, well, Shane, I don't know all about that. Can't really see a lot of external evidence of that restoration. What well, happens in part by part, piece by piece. I, I, I'm not a car guy by, uh, by nature. If you saw the kind of cars I drove, you would understand that I'm not a car guy. But I will tell you, if I happen upon one of these classic car restoration shows, one of these marathons on the Discovery Channel, I'm sucked in. I can't turn off. Uh, there's two, two marathons I can get hooked on. The Harry Potter Marathon on Christmas. I'll watch every single one of them suckers right back to back to back. And classic car restorations. I don't know what it is. There's something about seeing these junkers. I mean... They find them in the strangest of places, an old barn, an old abandoned garage out in a field. They find these horrible cars and they bring them into the garage, put them under the care of these mechanics and 
I mean, these guys are, they're, they're more than mechanics. They're really artists. They will start taking this piece off and remodeling and reshaping this piece of the body and they'll fix some of the electrical and they'll put on some new tires and they'll fix some of the interior. And before you know it, you're starting to see these parts of restoration come to play. And then at some point, man, they, they get this final prod product that they're, they're so proud of. And I mean, it looks radically better than they found it. I mean, it was an old junker, a clunker, just a piece of junk. And now it's like shiny and beautiful and all these decked out, tricked out things. And then the owner who found it comes in to see it. And man, they, they, they roll her out there and their eyes bug out of their heads. Wow, this is my car. This is my vehicle. Are you kidding me? And then they like drive off. That's my sound for driving off fast, right? I'm still a little boy playing with his cars, you know, uh, revving trucks and cars. The end product is radically better than where they found it. Piece by piece, part by part, section by section, taking this and swapping it. And the work of God in our lives is like that to some degree. When we come to faith in Christ, we come to belief in Christ, we are a sinner who has been saved, but then the restoration process begins and part by part, piece by piece, God exchanges that which was once part of who we were and then restores it for his glory. Oh, I've, I've seen men and women who had their minds restored. You know, your head, your brain, your thoughts can be full of all kinds of things. All kinds of negative things, unholy things. You've seen things, you've thought things, you've been exposed to things and they're stuck in there. They're never ever leaving like permanent pictures, permanent Place things in this brain, in this mind of ours. And over time, if you surrender that to the Lord and surrender that to Christ, there is an exchanging, a restoration of your mind. The scripture says that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, that God can renew it and renew it and renew it. And the old goes away and the new, good, godly, pure, excellent, righteous, holy is in, included. But it's surrendering God to say to him, Changed my mind, changed my thoughts, changed my thinking. Take what is unholy and ungodly in my brain and in my thoughts and exchange that for things that are holy unto you. I've seen people's words be restored. Now that's not to say that everybody changes the way we speak, but the words that come to our mouths. Maybe you grew up in a place where Language was a little more rough, a little more filthy, a little bit more vulgar, a little bit more coarse. And you're saying, God, change my words. I don't want to sound that way. I don't want to speak that way. I don't want to speak to others in those ways and using those terms. And through the restoration of God's power in your life, he'll exchange those words for words that are honoring and true and good. Oh, I've seen people's words change. I've seen people's view of themselves be restored. You know, a lot of folks have a view of themselves. It's pretty negative. They're shamed. They feel guilty. They feel worthless. 
They feel like they have absolutely no value, unwanted. And God can restore that image. He can restore that view of yourself. He can restore the work that he has done by his grace in your life and then give you a sense that you're not worthless, you're not having no value, but that you're valuable to him and that you have worth and that you have gifts and talents and skills that he has uniquely crafted in you for his purpose and his glory. It's a change. It's a restoration. Friends, it's going to be part of your walk with the Lord. You're going to be restored just as this woman was restored. She walked for 12 years in this deathly battling struggle and God instantly restored her from her healing and from her bleeding. But then for the remainder of her life, Christ Jesus continued to restore her and we will be restored. We are being restored piece by piece, part by part as we surrender more and more to Christ. I'd like to invite the praise team to join me here as I close with this final thought. Yes, we certainly have been restored by Christ's power. But we also have all been brought from death to life. This little girl was dead. There's no doubt she was dead. She wasn't in a comatose state. She wasn't in a, she hadn't passed out, but still breathing, heart still beating. She was dead. The mourners had arrived. Servant told Jesus, don't worry about coming, she's gone. The parents had already begun to come to grips that she was no longer with them. But Jesus called to her, arise, and brought her from death to life. And two, if you know Jesus Christ, if you have heard his voice and has been, you've responded to him by faith, you have heard him say, child arise, child arise, child come back from death to life. Hebrews chapter two, verse nine says this, but we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is the one who tasted death for you and I. He's the one that tasted death for all who come to him by faith, who respond to his voice, who hear his call. He is the one that has died in our place. John chapter five, verse 24, Jesus's words. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He, she, does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The believer in Christ who has been saved by God's grace, we face death differently. We face death, the end of this physical life differently. Yes, this physical life will come to an end, but the spiritual life that we have been promised through Christ is happening now and it goes into eternity. We won't face judgment. We won't face the penalty of our sin. We won't face the condemnation that comes for those who disobeyed God. We have trusted him by faith and through that we are promised that we were once dead, but we have been made alive. He said, child arise. And at some point in your life, if you've walked with Christ, you heard that call and you responded to him and you were lifted from death and you will never experience it again. You see, Jesus 
healed two women that day. A two for the price of one. He restored the one and he resurrected the other. And he does the same thing in all of our lives. Amen? He restores and he resurrects for his glory and for his name alone. Would you bow your heads with me? I'm just going to ask you to be in a spirit of prayer now, spirit of reflection. There might be an area of your life that you need to surrender over to the Lord to be restored. An area in your life that is not wholly surrendered unto Him. It could be your thoughts. It could be your words. It could be your view of yourself here. It could be your attitude. You just need to lay that before Jesus' feet just as Jairus laid and fell before Jesus' feet and just call upon Him and ask for restoration. That He would continue doing a work in you in this particular area for His glory. There may be others who fear the end, fear what's next, who fear what happens after this life. And today you just need to confess that fear and trust fully that if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have passed from death to life and are assured abundant, eternal life with Him in glory. There may be others who have not found Jesus because they've never sought Him out. They've never sought out Him to kneel at His feet and to come before Him in repentance and faith. Maybe today that would be your heart's call. I'm going to say a prayer and then we're going to respond. And if you'd like to come to this altar, it's always open. If you'd like someone to pray with you, I would be happy to do so. Would you pray with me? So Lord, I ask in this moment that we would respond. If we need to be restored in certain places, in certain parts of our life. That you would count us to lay those before your feet. Trust that you restore all who trust you by faith. And Lord, if there be any who needs to begin a relationship with you for the very first time, passing from death to life, I pray that they would respond today. As we come to you now, Lord, I pray that you would work in a way that only you can. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.